everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Ben Pogue. He's running for prosecutor in South Carolina, a district that includes Charleston. He's running as a reformer against an incumbent. So welcome to our show, Ben. Thank you, David. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad we get this chance to discuss uh, justice and maybe what it should look like as we move into the future, maybe a more equitable future. So maybe you can uh, start by telling us why you're running for prosecutor. Yeah, in, um, in South Carolina, we actually call it solicitor, which uh, is a thing in and of itself. It, it's sort of... Um, part and parcel with a justice system here in South Carolina that has kept itself at arm's length or further from the people. Um, so, uh, But it is the same thing as district attorneys, prosecutors, and other places. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really a confluence of different things. My folks uh, sort of brought my sister and, up and, my, and myself up to think if you see a problem, if you see people who are getting harmed, and you don't do something about it, then you bear some responsibility for that. So part of it is just the value set that I grew up with. Uh, but we're also at a place in time, specifically here in South Carolina, uh, where we really need somebody who can build trust in our justice system and understand why equity, especially racial equity, is such a big part of it. Um, and I've got the skills to do that. I'm not the typical criminal defense attorney or prosecutor that's just a career prosecutor that's running for this, but um, my career and my, my litigation practice really focuses more actually now on mediation. And that's sort of what we need more than anything right now is somebody who understands, first of all, that our justice system does not work without the trust of the public, without the public and communities seeing that their values are going to be reflected by the representative who is there for the people, the prosecutor, the district attorney, the solicitor, as we call it, who is there literally representing the people. Um, if you don't have that trust and if you don't have the skill set to build those relationships and more than anything to listen to what the community's concerns are, to understand the importance of equity, uh, then you're not going to have an effective justice system that delivers on that constitutional promise of justice for all. Um, and then you know, on top of that, I, I've, I've had a personal experience with crime. I was held at gunpoint. I know what that's like, and I know what uh, a lot of uh, folks who I know who are 
victims who experience crime go through the emotional um, and psychological progression after that. And there are a whole lot of folks who experience crime who, like me, end up with after going through anger and grief and questioning actions, all these kinds of things, end up with having that same kind of question that I had, which is what do I do to stop this? What do I do to make sure that this doesn't happen to somebody else? And David, the traditional model of mass incarceration, um, the traditional model of an institution sort of doing, uh, looking for a win for the institution doesn't serve the community. It doesn't deter crime. It doesn't reduce crime. And it certainly doesn't pave the way for the notion of justice that most people have, you know, access to resources and an access to or a, a, a paved way towards success. Uh, interpersonal and family and neighborhood and community success for everyone. Uh, so that's sort of what we can deliver. It's why my skill set matches with what we have as needs, certainly here in the South and South Carolina. So tell us a bit about, it looks like they've divided uh, the solicitor into circuits. Um, and so maybe you can explain how that all works. Yeah, so we've got different circuits in South Carolina. Each one of the terms is for four years. Uh, so I'm running for the ninth circuit solicitor. So we've got 46 counties that are divided into these uh, 16 circuits. Um, I'm sorry, 18 circuits. And uh, Charleston and Berkeley County are part of the ninth circuit. They make up the ninth circuit. It's, it's a rather large area. It's almost the size of a U.S. congressional district. So it's about 600,000 residents in Charleston, Berkeley County. Um, third largest judicial circuit in the state, I think. But um, like I said, it's the same thing as district attorney everywhere else. The solicitor's in charge of the prosecution of uh, serious crimes, so we think felonies. But really the job description is about doing justice. So in the past, and a lot of your guests, uh, I think have talked about this, the, you know, sort of the old idea, the, the mass incarceration mindset that a prosecutor's job is to prosecute, to try cases to put people away as long as possible. But that, like I said, it just doesn't work. And um, it doesn't really do justice to what justice should be for regular folks on, on the street in, in every neighborhood. Um, so when we're thinking of what our idea of what our local justice system should be and what a leader in the form of a solicitor should be doing, it's to do that. It's to do justice. We've Got, uh, one of our innovative ideas is uh, having a community action team, which we've already assembled, which are 12 folks who are networked into uh, different facets of our community, which a lot of folks think of as social justice uh, areas, transportation, education, housing, healthcare, and, and many others. And to connect justice in those areas to what we formally termed our criminal justice system, which we just like to call our justice system, um, to understand that if you look at the root causes of crime, if you look at what helps people stay successful, what gives them a pathway to, um, you know, a, the good life that we all sort of dream of, the American dream, you know, all those things are tied together. They're about making sure that people have resources, but that also includes doing things that happen to reduce crime. You have stable transportation resources, when you have stable housing resources, stable health care, then you've got an educational system that paves the way for later uh, economic development. 
uh, when you have economic development issues, all those things together end up reducing crime and paving the way for justice for everyone. So our community action team sort of embodies the way we feel about how justice um, should be guided with a four-word mantra, which is reduce crime, increase justice. It's as simple as that. And it's really interesting, you know, because uh, as I was telling you before we got on the air here, uh, you know, we talk to people all over the country. We have people listening from all over the country. And I think my regular listeners will listen to what you have to say and, and say, wow, this is really what we're hearing from uh, reform-minded prosecutors and prosecutor candidates all over the country. Um, and yet here you are, you're, you're, you're uh, talking to us from South Carolina I noticed in the news um, that uh, recent polling had the presidential race uh, pretty close uh, there. So South Carolina is kind of changing at this point? Yeah, it really is. You know, David, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, Jamie Harrison has become a, a good friend of mine. He's running against Lindsey Graham. I think they're basically neck and neck. I've seen polls that have uh, Jamie up a point. Uh, have Joe Biden up a point. There are other polls that have uh, Joe Biden, Jamie Harrison down, and our president and Lindsey Graham up. So um, I'm not sure if anybody really knows how it's going to go. But uh, when Jamie Harrison specifically, who I'm really happy to say endorsed our campaign, uh, when he's talking to folks, it's really about solutions. And the tool that has been missing I think politically, but certainly in our justice system, is the tool of community. Now, David, community is not some feel-good notion. It certainly feels good, but it's also a strategy. It's a strategy for building trust. It's a strategy for assessing what the real needs of regular folks are and addressing them. And we don't have that. That's what we have been lacking. Um, And so it's not necessarily about a certainly South Carolina's shift to become more of a purple state is not necessarily about political ideology or not the entrenched notions of political ideology. It's much more about uh, people just understanding that they need a political leader who listens to them, who's engaged with them, who doesn't simply make campaign promises, but wants to find out what the root of the problem is and where we can find confluence in our values. So I think that that is the shift in South Carolina, um, rather than simply looking at it it as uh, whether somebody's a Democrat or a Republican, or whether it is more Democrats or Republicans or Libertarians or progressives or you name it. It's really a shift to more and more people understanding that they're less and less in touch with their political leaders. And that's precisely why our, why our campaign has focused on mending those fences and really engaging the trust of communities when it comes to the justice system. It doesn't work unless people trust it. We've, we've got a great justice system, but um, it just doesn't work if people are not willing to call the police because they don't trust the police or they don't trust the justice system. It doesn't work when you're trying to do an investigation when no one in the neighborhood will talk to you. It doesn't work when we have huge racial disparities in terms of the attorneys who are in the office. And it doesn't work when you have huge racial disparities on juries. 
Uh, none of those things engender trust. And suddenly you get a justice system that's broken and in need of fixing. And that's what we've got here, um, certainly in our justice system. But I think that's, that's, that's what we've got in South Carolina as a whole. And people want that fix. And the fix is community. So tell us a bit about the incumbent. Uh, 13 years, I think I read. Yeah, Scarlett Wilson is her name. She's been in office since 2007. She was appointed by Mark Sanford uh, back then, ran in a Republican primary, and that's the only contested race that she's been in. That was 2008. Um, interestingly, part of her platform was um, you know, working on getting undocumented uh, individuals into the system and uh, making sure that they were charged with crimes. But um, you know, it's been... It's been 20 years since there has been a contested general election in the Ninth Circuit in Charleston and Berkeley County with a Republican and Democrat. Uh, so I'm the first Democrat running for this seat in 20 years. And uh, yeah, our, my opponent, uh, Scarlett Wilson, she's been in there since 2007, and this is her first uh, general election that's been contested as well. Uh, in those 13 years, we just have not had the changes that we need. We haven't had to focus on community, and so we've gone the other way. Um, we've had a solicitor's office where there are 40 attorneys, where there's been a maximum of two African-American attorneys. Currently, there's one out of those 40, where we consistently see, according to a 2016 study, our solicitor uh, tries cases. When she tries, actually tries the cases, they're almost exclusively against black defendants, and um, with the exception of Michael Slager, which was necessary. But that trial ended up in a, a hung jury, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, and we consistently see jurors of color struck at much higher rates. And, um, you know, you look at the outcomes, and the outcomes here in Charleston and Berkeley, South Carolina, uh, in, in our counties, still have basically the same old disparities, much higher rates of African-Americans specifically, but also our Hispanic Latinx population getting arrested, being prosecuted, and for longer sentences. Um, you still have uh, that mistrust with the community as well. So uh, I was talking to an audience the other evening, David, I said, who, who looks at this system where solely on the basis of what, what your race is, if you're African-American, then you're five times more likely to be arrested and convicted of crime, and, and you're probably going to do more time as well. Who looks at that situation and doesn't say, this is an emergency that we need to change right away? Well, that's what we've got. Uh, so it's not just these dynamics that I've mentioned. It's also the continued lack of outreach in the community and obvious instances, especially in the Walter Scott, Michael Slager trial, where there's verbiage that is it's patently offensive. Uh, and what I'm referring to, anybody can look it up online. You can see the entire opening statement of uh, the current solicitor, where she started out that trial of Michael Slager, the North Charleston officer who shot Walter Scott, an unarmed African-American man of about 50 years, uh, who was running away from him, shot him nine times in the back and killed him. In the trial um, for that murder, our current solicitor opened up her uh, opened up the trial with her opening statement by saying he wouldn't have lost his life if he hadn't gotten out of the car or res resisted his arrest, and then followed it up by saying of Walter Scott, the victim who was killed, 
he lost his life for his foolishness. Um, and that's, that's patently offensive. It's wrong to say that. Uh, and, and I've heard the excuse from the current solicitor that it was a jury made up of 11 white people in a conservative venue. But the job of the prosecutor is to convince the jury. It doesn't help that you cater to the prejudices of the jury and then reinforce them. That does not convince them. So it's wrong tactically. It's wrong culturally. It's insensitive at the very least, if not patently inappropriate. Um, and then to me, to make matters worse, she juxtaposed that statement about the victim who was shot in the back on video with, oh, but no, we're here about the accused, police officer Michael Slager, who made bad choices, who uh, let his sense of authority get the better of him. I mean, let's compare those two things. That's part of our national discussion of how we see race, how we characterize individuals of different ethnicities. One is we're saying this victim, Walter Scott, who's African-American, died for his foolishness which is an antebellum phrase. The other one, we're saying that this police officer just was so filled with his sense of authority, which is a positive thing, that that's why this murder occurred, because he made bad choices. None of that is good. Um, and when we know that justice only works if you have the trust of the community, we've got this history in words and in deeds that engenders mistrust. And that's what we've got to change. And it doesn't matter whether uh, you're in a upper middle class, uh, our area of the country is very de jure segregated, very separated neighborhoods, um, not a lot of uh, ethnic, cultural, gender um, diversity. When you are, are talking to somebody from an upper middle class, primarily white neighborhood, or whether you're talking to somebody who's in a historically redlined African-American neighborhood, it doesn't matter if the justice system is unequal, if it's about whether you've got the right connections, whether you hire the right attorney, whether you are the right race to the typical conservative jury, then it's not fair for anyone. That is not justice. That does not decrease crime. It doesn't reduce crime. It doesn't increase justice for anyone. So we're trying to change that. And the change is absolutely necessary because we've got an ongoing crisis. And I think people are responding to that. Uh, certainly the polls are, are looking pretty favorable. So um, I think that there's, there's going to be a lot of support come election day and, and even before as we start voting early. And I'm glad you brought up uh, the Walter Scott, Michael Slager case, because like a lot of people, we covered that from afar uh, five years ago. And, you know, for, for those who don't recall, uh, Walter Scott, African-American, was pulled over by, I think he was a highway patrol officer, but you can correct me on that. Um, he ends up... Uh, getting out of the car, um, they get into some kind of altercation, and then he's running away. And, and the officer basically lies at this point. And uh, before he knew that there was a video, he said that Walter Scott had tried to take away his taser, and that's why he had to shoot him. 
But what we actually saw when the motorist's uh, video came out was that he was far away and running away when he got shot in the back, I think you said nine times. Um, and so this is not a case of bad choices. This is a case of an officer doing something egregiously wrong, even under the antiquated laws of uh, officer use of force at that time and lying about it, right? Yeah, David, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'll, I'll make a couple of edits. Um, uh, yeah, it's a North Charleston police officer, Michael Slager. There was a, apparently a taillight infraction. Um, and uh, Walter Scott no doubt knew that there was going to be more. Um, I believe he was a, behind on his child support payments. And it, it looks like at least there's some video evidence that there was some sort of uh, physical interaction. But it's clear when you look at the video, which is obviously very disturbing. But we've seen now countless videos like this in the aftermath of Walter Scott's death, where there is clearly an opportunity for the situation to be resolved, or at least not result in the death of an individual, but instead, Officer Michael Slager had his gun, had somebody who was obviously running away from him and shot at close enough range to be absolutely positive, repeatedly killing him. And then, um, yeah, that was not the report from the officer. Uh, so, yes, he lied about it. That's what the video seems to show. Um, and, David, this is our huge point, and it's – with what happened to Brianna Taylor in the grand jury, we, we've got to look at this again and understand the impact of it uh, from a microscopic level, but also a macroscopic level. Uh, it doesn't make sense when we look at these things individually. But uh, at the greater 30,000-foot view, when regular folks see video, see actual things happening and see them in person, see reality and then have a justice system that delivers a result that is totally antithetical to that, that creates mistrust. We wonder why people are protesting. It's because our institutions, like our justice system, and certainly this is the case where I am, are not reflecting reality. And there are obviously a whole lot of levels uh, politically where, where we see this, but that's what creates mistrust. And it's you're never going to get justice unless you start having people who really are dedicated to having a justice system that reflects reality, that delivers the right results, um, and that uh, demonstrates as a system that we've got the right people in there who are committed to reflecting our values and to being our voice. So how do you respond to the people that push back and say, well, the real problem here was Walter Scott. If he had simply submitted to the officer in the first place, he'd be alive today, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I think that's too simplistic. But I'm wondering how you respond to that. Yeah, we... Um, this is a big topic that we need to have continual discussions on. Uh, and we do. That's actually part of our campaign. We do restorative justice forums. Anybody can look up on our website. 
uh, in one of the things, I think the most important forum that we did talked about the choices that people make, the decisions that people make, um, which can be really grave decisions. And a, a big reason we had this particular, that particular forum, restorative justice forum, uh, I forget what we called it, I think we called it the context of grave decisions. We talked about uh, economics of decision-making. We talked about <laughs> the impact of all kinds of things uh, from uh, practical decisions, the, the things that young people especially are thinking when you're going through a stressful situation like being arrested or being confronted, the notions that people have about the justice system. There's a lot that goes into people's decision-making. But one of the reasons we had it was because over the summer, after we released video, discovered and released video at the behest of a whole lot of other attorneys in town, about uh, my colleague, my opponent's opening statement, there was an article, an editorial in our local Post and Courier saying, look, um, you know, we got to talk about why black people run from the police. And I, I don't want to misquote the article. I invite people to look it up, the Post and Courier article from this summer. But it was essentially saying, look, somebody who runs the police is probably guilty of something. But like you said, that's incredibly simplistic and it disregards everything that goes into that person's understanding what the costs and benefits of their actions are, why there is a tremendous mistrust. So think of it this way, and we talked about this in our forum. You're an African-American male who was stopped by a white officer for a taillight infraction. Um, I don't know about you, David, I've never been stopped by, a by anybody for a taillight infraction in my life. That never happened. I'm 51 years old. Um, but if you speak to African-Americans in Charleston County, Berkeley County, and all over South Carolina, everybody's got a story. Uh, so right there, it starts out with something that conveys to the individual who stopped Walter Scott that there is a, an existing racial bias right there. And then when that individual knows the justice system or has had some interaction with it and has seen up close and personal the disparities that we work with uh, that exist that don't seem to be all that much of a priority to eradicate, um, it, it, that person is going through a whole lot of stress and mistrust of what's going to happen over the next couple of days if they're arrested, if they're behind on their payments, which is largely a poverty crime, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be in jail for a few days? Are they going to lose their job because they're in jail for two, three days? How long is it going to take them to get those charges? And what if an individual might think, and I don't, nobody knows what was in Walter Scott's mind, but if an individual thinks, what if I get away and can raise from my entire family and friends network enough money so that I can present myself and say, here are the payments for child support and I'll pay a fine or whatever. And is that a better, uh, is that a better outcome? And I talked to a, a professor at our local college of Charleston who teaches game theory. One of the things he said is, look, when you're under stress, you make bad decisions. So in those kinds of conduct uh, contexts, and with the understanding that everybody you know, who's under stress makes bad decisions, is it a little bit more understandable that someone would run from the police? And the answer is obviously, yeah. So what are we doing about it, though? What are we really doing? And David, the, the first part of that solution has got to be, well, understanding that the question is, what do we do to repair this mistrust? Um, I think that's where we need our focus to be.
in terms of finding a way through this so that we can have community actively engaged with justice together to see it as a partnership where we're all working together for the same goals rather than seeing this antagonistic approach, police versus communities, uh, or justice system solicitor's office versus police officers and solicitor's office versus the community as well. It's just not gonna work. Um, but I think that's gotta be a big part of the discussion about why these things happen in the first place and how do we get um, to the solution. And I think, I think you have the first part of that equation there. Um, but there, there are kind of two other factors in addition to uh, lack of trust, which I completely agree with. And what I've seen in the last month in the police shootings that I've covered is uh, a huge percentage of these are mental health calls that go bad uh, because the police don't know how to, how to handle some of these uh, calls where uh, things start going sideways and they don't have the tools by which uh, to deal with it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's crazy that we have not partnered public health with justice. It's crazy that we haven't done this. I was on a call. We, you know, we've got a great uh, local public hospital here, uh, Medical University of South Carolina. And they have folks right there doing research on the causes of violence. A lot of folks who are in their trauma unit they're building a database. They're taking histories of individuals who are victims of violence, but also people who come in who may have perpetrated violence or crime in the past. And part of those histories are understanding what those folks' uh, resources are in the community, what their family dynamics are, all those kinds of things, right? So why aren't we taking all that knowledge of the causes of violence and overlaying it with what we're doing in justice? Uh, you probably have heard this from, uh, I know you've heard this from a number of prosecutors you talked to because I've heard it on the podcast, but, um, you know, we understand, we have to understand that sentencing in itself in prison in itself does harm. Um, it, it's not a great system. It doesn't do a great job of deterring crime and it causes harm. We you know the ACEs factors, adverse childhood experience is one of the major ones uh, that ends up being a factor that contributes to kids doing criminal activity later on is whether they've had a, a parent incarcerated and half of our uh, african-american men who are incarcerated in our area are parents of young kids uh, so we're actually doing what uh, we're setting people up to do those bad things later on but uh, all this is in a sense a public health issue that we're, and we're not taking care of it we're, we're not we, we don't have the police engaged and the law enforcement, whether it's police or sheriff's office, engaged in understanding that it's a public health issue, understanding that there are individual public health issues like, um, well, specifically mental health issues, but also drug addiction and drug abuse, which is a, another kind of mental health or, or physiological health issue. Uh, we have the wrong people responding. We don't have the right training. Uh, we don't have the right mindset. Um, but we only get there by starting to make those partnerships happen. So even as a candidate, and obviously I'm not elected yet, but one of the things our community action team does is engage the healthcare community in understanding what their data is, what questions they're asking that we haven't been asking, understanding what kinds of, of 
law enforcement and individual interactions would be better handled by a health worker, healthcare worker, by EMS, by a, uh, a counselor who's trained in understanding whether there are mental health issues or substance abuse issues. We talk about all those things, but we talk about it because it hasn't been talked about before. So we're really just taking these, we're at the incipient st stages here uh, of trying to understand that this is a connection that should have been made a long while ago, and it's one of the solutions that we've got to continue. So our idea is to create the partnership first, and then share data, uh, share uh, analysis, um, certainly look at mapping, but then also understand how our sentencing is playing into that and sometimes making things worse, understanding how we can work with law enforcement to get them to understand what the public health aspect of it is and how they may alter their training and practices in order to make sure that we are not exacerbating mental health or physiological health issues right at the point of contact. Um, and also, you know, we've got, we actually have some really good police chiefs here. Uh, one's over in North Charleston, a guy named Reggie Burgess, who's just great. He's really big on community policing. He wants to, he says in meetings, we can't arrest our way out of this. He's big on preventing crime by doing some of this kind of analysis. We just, what we lack is the leadership on the justice part to say, yeah, let's, let's further explore these relationships. Let's share data, let's share solutions and let's see how we convert the roles of some of the individuals involved to take a more appropriate response. And a big part of that response is a public health response. And I think it's important to, uh, to kind of uh, reiterate uh, that, you know, you're describing the situation in Charleston, South Carolina, but really, you know, we could close our eyes and you could be describing the situation in Sacramento, California, just as easily. Yeah. So this isn't like, you know, just at, endemic to one area. This is law enforcement and, and the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, if you want to call it that, are, are way behind the times in terms of uh, assessing uh, mental health as part of their protocols. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and actually, we should be learning from things that are going on in other parts of the country. Exactly. Uh, you know, whether it's St. Louis or Kentucky or New York or um, Atlanta or Sacramento, uh, we, we had a guest on our program. We've had two guests um, on our Restorative Justice Forum series that are right from your area. One uh, guy is a sentencing expert and another guy is uh, a guy named Khalid Mutaki who works with Advanced Peace and they're doing some really interesting things utilizing formerly incarcerated individuals to do mentoring communities to intersect with um, individuals who are responsible for a large percentage of the crime but are notoriously uh, elusive for law enforcement. And they sort of have this uh, prolonged mentoring program that ends up uh, really doing cognitive behavioral therapy on these key individuals. And it reduces crime tremendously in these areas. And you're just all they're doing is they're using the right people, they're using a data-driven approach, and they're using the right method to reduce crime. It does take out of it the punishment element, which I know from, a, I'm somebody who's experienced this, you get angry, you wanna punish people, but it's not always the best way to actually reduce the threat or public health risk of crime and violence. Um, so they're sort of taking that out of the equation 
and um, just using a different approach. Well, we can do that in a lot of different areas of the country. It doesn't really matter where you are. If the approach works, then let's work with it. And you know, it's, it's inter interesting, uh, David, um, there's a uh, multi, um, I think it's called multi-systemic therapy, um, which is sort of the, this idea that we're, we're going to identify pods, families, peer groups that are involved in uh, really that have generational psychological and emotional issues that contribute to them being sort of crime hotspots, offending behavior hotspots, and really uh, sometimes antisocial behavior that's, that's passed down through generations. Well, the guy who really pioneered that is over here in South Carolina. Um, <laughs> if you look up MST, uh, multi-systemic theory, then, um, you know, it's, it's right here in Charleston. Um, Dr. Hengler, I believe his name is, but we haven't used it. We're just not using it. So these tools are out there. The data is out there. The knowledge is out there. We're just not using it. So it's sort of a failure of, um, of innovation, a failure to think of anything but the mass incarceration institutional mindset. And I'd be remiss not to bring in systemic racism into this conversation. I, I know this is a problem everywhere. Uh, I have this conversation in my hometown, a liberal college town in California, uh, and and we have the same problems. Uh, they're di they look a little different, but we have our own racial problems. So, so what does it look like there these days? It's, um, it's a hard discussion, um, and I'm a white guy. <laughs> I'm a white guy, so... Uh, you know, part of what we need to do uh, that we see here locally, more in South Carolina maybe than in other areas, you know, it's different everywhere. Um, but we've got to have these uncomfortable discussions that sometimes start with the white guy in the room, that's me, saying, yes, I acknowledge that I'm a product of white privilege. And let me tell you sort of the things that I've investigated um, in my family's history to find out where we have advantage or where we have received advantages and benefits and privileges that other people haven't. Um, and that in maybe more liberal territory is sort of part of the background that everybody already knows. But in South Carolina, it's, it's a big step to have those conversations and to acknowledge that white privilege exists, to acknowledge that systemic racism exists, to acknowledge that I'm an individual simply because of where I was brought up, but um, also because of things I should have seen and didn't, my own personal blind spots, that uh, you know, I'm sort of part of the problem. Uh, a friend of mine who works at Emanuel AME, where the Emanuel Nine massacre occurred, um, he, was, he and I were talking one day after the Calhoun, the John C. Calhoun statue finally came down in Charleston, South Carolina. We were proud to have that come down. But he and I were talking on the street uh, a few minutes after that, and he said, you know, is this going to be real? We have had uh, advances in certainly the conversation about racial equity in the 90s and the 60s and before that in the 40s and 50s and before that in the 20s and 30s. But is this going to be real? And my response to him is, you know, I think that it might become real. The change might become real, but I think it's only going to happen if people who look like me start saying, yeah, 
this is a real thing. Let me talk to you about my level of white privilege. Let me talk to you about my blind spot and help guide other people who look like me along that same path. And uh, another point along that path, that educational path, is to acknowledge that systemic racism exists and to start pointing out where it exists and to start um, connecting it to specifically, for me, justice. Because that is something that a lot of folks, no matter where they come from or what their background is, what they look like in our country, do still believe in. We believe in that as Americans. Well, a lot of folks do. That justice is supposed to be there for everyone. So we found whether we're talking to whoever uh, and wherever they are on the uh, political spectrum, everybody sort of wants a system that they can trust, a system that is equal for everyone. So when we start pointing out things like, okay, well, is this equal for all? When at bond hearings, you're much less likely to be represented if you're poor and if you're black, let alone if you're Hispanic. Uh, is it really justice for all when we don't really afford attorneys to people who are uh, charged with crimes in our misdemeanor? system. Um, you know, when we start bringing up those kinds of things, is it justice for all? How would you feel if you are a white person pulled over by two black officers? Let's switch it. Let's have these conversations where we sort of switch people's identities and their perspectives. Do you think that that's right? And then you get people going, oh, that, oh, that doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem right. And then um, you have to incorporate okay, here are my biases from the past. Have you looked into these kinds of things? It's all part of a, a long, uncomfortable conversation that eventually leads people to say, well, justice for everyone is great. And yeah, we ought to really try and make sure that we've got it. Racism, it is there and it's hard to see. And maybe I or my family for generations have played a part in it because we did not see where our blind spots are. And Let's see if we can start to acknowledge those kinds of things and start fixing them. Uh, and the reason we're tied in the polls is because we've had a whole lot of those conversations uh, with people from every background and every political ideology. And, you know, it's uh, having solutions for those kinds of things and acknowledging systemic racism, especially injustice. It's something that a lot of people are open to, whether it's here in South Carolina or anywhere else. Yeah, and I think we could talk about that all day, but I, uh, we are running out of time. I did want to bring up one more issue. You mentioned it briefly, but restorative justice is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, what does your program that you're proposing look like? We're, we're taking baby steps. Uh, <laughs> we're taking baby steps, David, but uh, the first step in that is to uh, start introducing the concept in really broad strokes. Uh, the, the little book of restorative justice is on my bookshelf in my law office. But we sort of, we're starting by helping people understand some key notions about restorative justice, that it's really focused on healing the harm of uh, crime and violence to victims and being victim-centered. Um, and as somebody who's gone down that path, it's, it's easier perhaps for me uh, in my life experience to talk about some of that kind of stuff, regardless of who my audience is in. The other part of it that's really uh, meaningful to our audience 
is to talk about community engagement. And um, we, we really talk about that as a whole, community engagement right now. What I'd like to see happen is integrating community more into circles, into uh, victim and offender conferences. And as a person who does a lot of mediations, sort of taking some of those community mediation skills and formats and implementing them within the justice system. Uh, those are all things that I think it's gonna take a while for us to get to. But the first steps, these baby steps, are in introducing the notion that the community should be involved, introducing the notion that we should really be guided by healing the harm to victims and healing the harm to everyone that is affected by this, which also plays into our notion about how we should use data to understand the impacts of sentencing for families, for neighborhoods, for entire communities. Um, so it's sort of getting the language down in the concepts first, and then maybe worrying about the specifics of how we implement those programs a little bit later. Uh, and our first step is to say, yeah, we wanna have a online series of discussions called restorative justice forums that are focused on those kinds of things. And we do our forums in, in an interesting format. It's not just the typical, a candidate is gonna tell you why they're great <laughs> kind of format, which we probably get enough of, right? Um, instead, we do it on a Zoom call. We vet the people who are who want to be on the Zoom call. We have panelists and participants. So the panelists are speaking for about the first half an hour or 40 minutes. And then we have breakout rooms on Zoom. So the panelists are in the breakout rooms with the participants who are on the call, prioritizing safe and confidential spaces. So we can have a discussion that's sort of behind the scenes. Our Facebook Live audience doesn't see those because, again, we really want those to be genuine conversations. Um, and then people come back and we can discuss what was in the breakout room. So it's really all about community engagement and about getting to the solutions that reduce crime, increase justice, but also heal the harm that has been done, whether it's to the offender, whether it is to the victim, and we really prioritize that, but also to family members, uh, like I said, neighborhoods and communities. So. Uh, we're taking baby steps, but I think that's how you get to an end game that's much more community engaged is you got to start someplace. And that's that's where we're trying to start. Well, it is amazing what we are able to accomplish even in these days of pandemic where we can't gather together in the same place. Yeah, it's strange, but I find Zoom is not bad. No, <laughs> it really not a bad isn't. format, you know? It's, you know, I'm a, my first degree was in psychology. So when you have people who are on Zoom, they tend to make more eye contact. And if you've got people making eye contact, but still doing in sort of a, a safe forum, then you get people understanding their fellow Zoom call participants perspective and context a little bit more. So we've actually been able to use it in a way that helps facilitate discussion and helps facilitate sharing those different contexts, which is such a big part of building relationships and building trust in a way that ultimately we hope makes justice work too. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day and for coming on our show and sharing with us the world of Charleston. And it's actually, you know, really uh, exciting. I, I understand that there are lots of, uh, scary things happening in the world and I, I, I'm not yeah. going to paint over that, but this is actually a really exciting time for a lot of things. 
Yeah, sure is. One of the, um, and I'll leave you with this, one of the um, perks of not having had a, an election for this seat in 20 years is that uh, besides folks being fed up, they're ready to, just like with Jamie Harrison's came, campaign, they're ready to engage in a discussion of new ideas and new ideas that not only sound good, but that regular folks understand work, like building trust and building relationships. And that's going to, we hope, be the hallmark for uh, moving our solicitor's office ahead, um, for building racial equity and um, building upon a justice system that everybody can believe is really for all. And thank you so much for David, uh, David, for having me. Really do appreciate it. Thank you. That was Ben Pogue. He's running for solicitor in Charleston, South Carolina, the Ninth Circuit of South Carolina. And uh, his election is coming up like everybody else's in, in, in just a few weeks. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.